Welcome to the Big Fellas Podcast, where we chop it up about all things past, present, and future about the game of basketball. Where facts, stats, and context reign supreme. That is blasphemous. Sometimes it gets crazy, but we always keep it real. Always keep it real. Get ready to learn from players, coaches, and fans from all levels of the game and see the court in a brand new way. And now, fresh off the sidelines, here's your host, John Hartofillis. What it do, fellas, and welcome to the Big Fellas Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, J.H., coming to you from New York City, the mecca of basketball. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Dave Hopla, world-renowned NBA shooting coach. In this episode, we spoke about how Dave became one of the best shooters in the world, stories from his coaching stops all across the association, and what it's like holding some of the most unbreakable records in shooting. We've got a going in store for you today, fellas. Episode number 33, Dave Hopla, NBA shooting coach. Hi, Dave. What's going on? Hey, how's everything? Great, great. It's, it's such an honor to have you on. This is so much fun. I mean, being that just a few years ago, I was, I was a camper at all the Super League clinics you used to do. So it's really fun to, to have you on. I appreciate you thinking of me and, uh, you know, wanting me to be on. Can't wait. And just to start off for our listeners, can you kind of give us a, a quick little backstory on how you kind of got introduced to the game? Uh, when I was a young kid growing up in Keyport, New Jersey, uh, I played, you know, in the Keyport Youth Athletic League for a team called the Hawks. My coach was Willie McCoy, and uh, growing up in a small town, you know, I played baseball, basketball, and football, and uh, basketball was my least favorite sport. I was a huge baseball fan and player. Uh, Willie Mays is my favorite athlete of all time, and uh, I really, you know, just played it was in, when it was in season, and then when I moved to high school, uh, ninth grade, I attended a junior high, actually, before uh, you went to high school in Baltimore, you only went three years. And I joined the YMCA and being a new kid in town, that's when I really uh, fell in love with the game because, you know, I was at the Y all the time and it was something I could do on my own. And it was uh, a lot tougher to try to get better at baseball or football on your own. But basketball, there's so many things you can do. Oh, of course. So, I mean, were you, were you kind of always a good shooter? Was it something that you really... No, no, I, was, I wasn't a good shooter at all. I learned to shoot the basketball. Uh, I went to basketball camp uh, up in the Pocono Mountains and uh, learned from, uh, you know, three at all-time greats, you know, Herb McGee, Hank Slider, and George Lehman. And I watched them shoot, and I, you know, I said, I can do that. And I went home and uh, tried to emulate them and replicate them. Okay, so, so those three must have been greatest basketball mentors, or did you have a couple more as time went on? Um, I had uh, one of the biggest mentors I had was a, a guy by the name of Dana Cunningham who went to Frostburg State, which is a Division three school in Maryland, and uh, he happened to uh, be in the Baltimore area during the summertime, you know, working at uh, General Motors, I believe it was, and, you know, he found his way up to the basketball courts where we played and he actually uh, took me wing and it was my own and he actually gave me a uh, pistol Pete Maravich's basketball homework on a mimeographed sheet of paper and I went home and uh, you know I, I started doing the drills down in my basement and all that stuff and uh, you know we just reconnected a few years ago you know via the internet and stuff and he's like I'm surprised you remembered me and I always tell people you know you you know uh, people never forget the kind acts that you uh, do for them. Of course, it's super important to, to always try and help other people. And then, I mean, in turn, it, it, it always comes full circle, which is great. What, what was kind of like your playing career, like whether it was in college and then when did you kind of start 
thinking of making that transition into coaching? Um, I'll tell you what I uh, was. I tell people, you know, I wasn't very good. I was on JV as a junior in high school, and I say that's against the law in 32 states. And you know, when you're on JV as junior, you're not very good. Uh, then my senior year, I made, uh, you know, all uh, honor. I made what was it? Uh, all county in Baltimore, and honorable mention uh, all state, and I made third team all metro. So, and then I went to junior college in Baltimore. I broke my ankle my first year and uh, played like 12 games. And I don't even think the, work, the term existed back then, the medical red shirt and stuff. So I lost a year eligibility. And then my second year uh, at junior college, I made all region 20 and honorable mention All-American. I still don't know what that means. I mean, either you're an All-American and you're not. I mean, everyone's an honorable mention All-American. And uh, from there, I went to uh, school. I went to school out in uh, Nebraska. I tell people I went to school in a foreign country in Nebraska. And I went to an NAIA school. And, uh, you know, most people don't know what NAIA stands for. It's no academic information available. But uh, so I was out there. And then uh, from there, I, I went overseas and played for a number of years. And then I came back. And I was like 32 at the time. And the Baltimore Lightning were uh, forming a team in the uh, the CBA before it was the D League and the G League and all that stuff. And Henry Bibby was the head coach and uh, uh, one of my rivals. I used to play against Rod Norris, who's actually Gene Shue's nephew, was the assistant. And they said, you know, why don't you uh, come out for the Lightning? And I'm, you know, I got a nice gig overseas. And they're like, you know, but you're a local favorite. You can put a few people in the crowd. I said, well, am I get 20 people in the crowd? He said, that's great for a CBA game, you know. So I went out evenings and forget it was when uh, Lawrence Taylor broke Joe Theismann's leg during Monday night football. And it's one of those injuries that you see, you get sick to your stomach. And I get a phone call from Henry Bibby right after that. And he goes, I got some good news and bad news for you. I said, give me some good news. I said, I just saw Joe Theismann's leg get broken. He goes, you're still with the team. I said, what's the bad news? He goes, we're moving to Rockford, Illinois. And, uh, you know, I said, I, I can't, I can't do that. So now with, I'm 32 years old, the team's, you know, gone out to Rockford, the checks had bounced more than the basketball. And I'm like, what am I going to do? It's a little too late to go overseas. And uh, my friend called me up and uh, said, Hey, why don't you coach? And I'm like, I'm not a coach. I'm a player. You know, I didn't, didn't want to coach. And uh, he kept bothering me. And I said, look, his name was Joe Bucci. Um, he was the coach at Dundalk Community College. So he kept calling me and I said to him, look, Joe, I'll come in. I don't want any money. I said, uh, I'm not going to commit to this. I'll come in whenever I can to help you out. And I've been coaching ever since, you know, I went in there and just uh, started coaching and like I said, been uh, coaching, uh, you know, ever since all different levels. And then finally, uh, Got my break in the NBA when I was uh, 46 years old with the Toronto Raptors. And then from there, I went from Toronto to Washington to the Knicks and then to uh, the Detroit Pistons. So who knows what uh, the future holds now with all these new coaching changes. That story is, is super interesting. And I have my mic muted so that there's no feedback, but you really made me laugh with the checks bouncing more than the basketball. That was really, that oh, was yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's the truth, though. That was... Uh, you know, overseas, it was pretty similar sometimes. But, you know, you love the game. I, at one point, uh, my teammate overseas was Boo Williams. And Boo runs the big AAU program down in uh, Virginia. 
and we had been played in a while. And, uh, you know, our coach said, you know, if you guys don't want to play, you know, I understand it. We're like, you know, what else do? That's where we're there. I mean, I'll play basketball. So. Well, uh, with these NBA jobs, I mean, you've had a couple of really cool stops, whether it's the Raptors um, during a time when they, when they had Chris Bosch, which is really interesting. Like what, what were some of the really cool kind of moments you could like pull, pull from that? From the uh, NBA it was a great experience being up there. We were known as team Euro. We had a lot of European players, you know, we had Jose Calderon, we had Jorge Corbajosa, who's now like, I think the uh, commissioner of the uh, Spanish league and everything. We had Anthony Parker who had played overseas for a number of years, you know, uh, before, uh, you know, getting his break in the NBA. And uh, we had Rasho Nesterovich, Euro slow car, Pop Sow off the bench. I mean, it was, uh, it was a great group of guys. Um, there was no clicks on that team. Like, we'd go out to dinner as a coaching staff, and, you know, you'd figure T.J. Ford and Chris Bosh, you know, both African-Americans, both from Texas, are star players. You'd think, like, you know, okay, they're going to be hanging out all the time. We'd be at dinner and then would walk uh, T.J. Ford with Jose, who was his backup at the time and everything. Or the next stop would be uh, T.J. with Rosho going out. You know, like, what did they have? But it's just a close-knit. There was no clicks on that team. And it really uh, showed on the court. I mean, we really moved the basketball. And, uh, you know, being my first with my first team uh, it was a great experience. We ended up uh, – winning the Atlantic division, but somebody had to win it that year it was really bad. We were like 500, like 42 and 40, I think just above 500. We won it. And, uh, we lost to the nets in the first round of the playoffs. So it was just a great, uh, great run, uh, great experience. And, uh, coach Mitchell was coach of the year. And, uh, it was Andre, Andre Bargnani's rookie year. I forgot we had him as well. You know, uh, he was the number one pick that year. That's great. It's interesting when you brought up Anthony Parker. He was on a Zoom call yesterday. James actually, Persuas was actually in that call. It was with, with one of our really good friends that's a coach at Super League. He organized it. And Anthony Parker, great guy. He was so nice. I mean, he stayed on. He's a, a wonder, wonderful yeah. human being. A great, great person. Uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, really one of my favorites. He really is. And then also when you brought up Jose Calderon, I mean, it's interesting, especially because he was one of the, probably the best free throw shooter in NBA history. I mean, he had the best season ever, shooting 98.1%. What was it like for you kind of like having, being with him almost every single day, like sharing secrets on shooting? Like, did you, did you learn some stuff from him? He learned some stuff from you. Uh, Jose actually, uh, you know, he was one of my, uh, you know, guys that, that I worked with and everything. And, uh, you know, he was uh, at first he was struggling a little bit with the, you know, to change from the international to the NBA three. And he became, you know, very proficient at the, at the three point line as well. And, uh, you know, he continued to improve throughout his career. I mean, just retired a couple of years ago now. And, uh, you know, he was always a, a good bet. And I'll never forget when uh, TJ Ford got hurt. TJ had hurt his ankle. And, uh, you know, Jose was playing at a high level. And TJ was, like, think concerned. Like, I think, uh, you know, I might lose my starting job or something. And, and he was trying to come back a little too soon. And Jose's like, amigo, amigo. He goes, you, you come back when you're ready. I go back to the bench. All I want to do is win, man. It's just the whole, you know, uh, difference in, in uh, thought process with the European players, you know, knowing that it's more of a team game. And that's what we uh, exemplified up there in Toronto. Toronto is the only international team in the NBA mentality over there. Cause I mean, we've obviously with James gone to Greece many times. I mean, I, I remember I was 16 the first time we went and played against those teams. The, the way they approach it is so different. We've had kids from their yes. our teams and the way they talk to us in the huddle is just 
the, the word I is in it almost, it's almost not even in their vocabulary, which is crazy to see. Right now. And it's, uh, you know, it's the way the game should play. There's nothing nicer to watch in a game of basketball when everyone touches that ball and the defense is trying to scramble, gather the rotations to catch up to the ball. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing when that ball's being passed, like the old Knicks with Walt Frazier and them, you know, they were, they were that way. And now it's, uh, you know, everyone wants to do everything off the bounce and everything. And, uh, you know, it's only like 1% of the players that actually do that on a consistent basis, you know? Of course. And then I remember because James made a big point of like, the reason that this happened is because when they go home, their parents ask them, did your team win? Not how many points did you score, which might be kind of the more mentality back here in the States. What, exactly. what are your kind of thoughts on that in terms of like, whether it's AAU culture, just that, that whole mentality of, oh, did you score 30? Okay, good. Win or lose, that you, you did a good job, which is kind of how we look at it here. But over there, it's like, if you score eight and your friend scores 10 and, and you guys end up winning, that it's a great game all around. Right. Uh, I think too much. Well, you know, it, it's changed from going way back. I mean, it used to be like, you know, you look at the old going back in the, in the 70s and everything, you know, it was the Lakers versus the Knicks. And then it became like uh, Kobe Bryant and the Lakers. Uh, you know, the star players were put before the team. And, uh, you know, I like with, uh, you know, when Bobby Knight was coached in Indiana, he never had a player's name on the jersey. You played for Indiana. You didn't play, you know, for yourself. And, you know, we're, we're a very, uh, you know, selfish, uh, you know, uh, country here in the United States. It's all I, me, you know, before, you know, the we. And, uh you know, I think that carries over, you know, everywhere on, not just on the basketball court, but off the court and everything. And, and, uh, you know, kids are all worried about, you know, how many points they score, how many touches they get. And you see that in the NBA and guys like winning, it's like, you know, finally late in the career, they're like, you know what? I haven't won anything. I mean, you go back, I just finished reading three ring circus and, you know, Carl Malone and Gary Payton tried to get that ring going to the Lakers. They thought, you know, they had a, had a chance to, to win uh, there because that was missing in her career. But, you know, after you get all the personal accolades, it's like, you know, they're, it's really hollow, you know? Uh, and, you know, I think AAU basketball, the kids play too many games, like say we're going to uh, spooky nuke this weekend. All right. We're playing at nine o'clock Saturday. Uh, we've lost by 30 and we're the elite team. You know, everyone's elite, you know, they lose by 30. I don't know what that other team must be. If this <laughs> So we, so we play at one o'clock up. Oh, we lost by 20. We're playing again at eight tonight. All right. Now we're in the losers bracket. So we play at eight o'clock Sunday and then we lose again. We play at noontime. So, you know, you're playing six games, whether you win or lose. So kids become like numb to losing. I know when I was growing up, we didn't have a, you, you went to the park to play. And if you lost, you sat. And you played with older guys. You were always playing up. You didn't play with now we kids lie on or they want to play down because they want to beat a big star and everything. And it was an honor if the older guys picked you if you were in high school and you got to play. And you had to play the right way if you wanted to you wanted to stay on that court. You had to defend, you had to pass the ball. And the only time you shot is if it was a last resort and you were wide open. And you better have made it. And I know when I was at the YMCA lunch times in the summertime, you know, a lot of the college kids would come up to play and, and the older guys that, you know, would plan their lunch hour. And if you screwed up and they only got to play one game at lunchtime, man, you might not play the rest of the summer. Nobody would pick you. And then the other thing is like, 
you know, you ha- you had to have your next five ready to go. It wasn't like you picked the best guys off the losing team. And at the end, like maybe there's only you only had three guys at the last game and you had to make your free throws in order to play. You didn't just pick the two guys that were the best. You had to you had to make free throws. So there was pressure on making a free throw if you wanted to play. And that's so true, especially, I mean, when you consider, I know you, uh, you feel really strongly about some of the IG trainers that we see on social media, putting kids through ridiculous training workouts, just try to show like they're trying to be creative, but it, it sometimes is a little bit fluff. Can you kind of speak on that? Uh, yeah, actually, I just uh, was watching, uh, uh, I actually just posted it too last night. Uh, it was episode 10 from my buddy, uh, Mike Procopio. Uh, he does uh Hoop consultants, him and Dave Severns, and they've uh, Dave's been coaching for a number of years. Now we scout. Mike used to be player development with the uh, Dallas Mavericks. I've known him since he's ten, and he said, you know, he's, he he used the reference. It's like you know the Wizard of Oz. You know, we're off to see the wizard, and everyone wants to see what the wizard was. And you know, at the end when they pulled the curtain down, what was there? You know, the little guy with all of it there. You're expecting to see like some. You know, they yeah. think NBA workouts, oh, NBA, like we have something like it's it's simplicity. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's repetition, doing what you're going to do in NBA games. And like, you know, these guys, and I understand you have to be able to dribble a basketball, but 99% of you are only going to take one or two dribbles in a game. You're not going through your legs 72 times, crossing over behind the back into a step back jump shot. There's less than, like less than 1% of the players that do that. But all these kids want to do that. And and half of them, if you did that step back that James Harden does in high school, that's a travel. I don't care. It's a travel. So why would you even be practicing it? You know? So and then they can't make they can't they're trying to teach kids Euro steps. The kid can't even make a left hand layup. You're trying to give them a Euro step. You have to master the basics before you can go from step A to step B. There's no you can't skip steps if you want to be a great player. Oh, that, that's so important. And can you kind of touch on some stories of kind of the great players that you worked with that you've, a lot of people talk about Kobe, how he would, they'd go to workouts and watch him play and he'd do basic jabs that do basic footwork drills. Yeah. And they expected something crazy. Can you kind of, do yeah. you have any experiences seeing that? Yeah. Well, I worked Kobe out like his first four years, uh, you know, I was working for Orin Tellum and everything. And uh, it was, it was simple stuff. And I know the story you're talking about Alan Stein was talking about, you know, uh, wanted to go watch Kobe work out. He said four o'clock and, Alan said, well, there's games four o'clock and Kobe says, no, it's four o'clock in the morning. And Alan went to go watch him work out. He says, he's excited. Kobe's the greatest player in the world right now. He's, uh, you know, uh, the MVP and all this. And, uh, he said he sat there with his notebook and didn't write down one thing. Cause all he did was a jab, jump shot, one, two dribble, pull up and so forth. And that's what it is. I mean, it's like, you know, the first time I worked Kobe out, he was 17 years old. We go to the gym. He looks me right in the eye and he says, teach me, coach me, tell me what I do. I want to be the greatest player to ever play the game. And if Kobe did something wrong or if something, he wanted to be correct. I mean, he wanted to get things down pat. And a lot of times, like we would work on a drill, a certain drill. And I'd say, you know, okay, you got to make a certain amount. And he'd say, oh, he goes, I want to keep doing it. It doesn't feel right yet. You know, even though he made like, say, whether it's make, you know, you got to make 10, 25 from this spot doing this. I, I got to stay with it doesn't feel right right now. You know, most people can't wait to finish and go on to the next thing. But the difference with Kobe was he wanted to master things. And that's what the thing is. Like I tell people, just because you did something right one time does not mean you've mastered it. And some of my favorite quotes like that I have 
like Bruce Lee, you know, the Kung Fu master and everything. He says, I do not fear the man that knows 10,000 kicks. I fear the man who has perfected one kick 10,000 times. And I feel too many players, they want to try to be great at everything. It's like 1%. Once again, let's go back to the 1% that they're going to be great at everything. You know, Kobe was offensive defense player. Michael Jordan was an offensive defensive player. You know, there's, you know, there's not everyone is a two way and great on at everything. It's like, you know, you got to find your niche, master your role, dominate your role and be the best that you can at that role. Unfortunately, every kid thinks that they're Michael Jordan and LeBron James and James Horton, you know? So then going back to, you end up going to the Knicks. They have a record setting season in 2013. I mean, that's something, I mean, obviously me being a New Yorker, most of the listeners to this show are Knicks fans. What can you kind of tell us about, about that experience and, and kind of being part of the organization the last time they were both relevant and or fun and all, all, that, all that good stuff? Uh, it, was, it was an exciting uh, time for me. I mean, I grew up in New Jersey and uh, when I was a young kid, you know, I loved the Knicks back with Wolf Frazier and, you know, and then they got Earl the Pearl because I was a Knicks fan living in Baltimore and stuff. And they used to have some epic battles. They just matched up so well. So for me, going into Madison Square Garden, I was excited every time I went in there. And I, you know, I would get in there early to get my workouts in. And I'm like, you know, I got Madison Square Garden for my own personal playground. So I was excited. And then, you know, to be with the Knicks organization and all the experts didn't even pick us to make the playoffs that year. I mean, we were an older team and they didn't think we, you know, we were like an afterthought and then we win 54 games Celtics in the first round and we lose to Indiana in the second. And then all of a sudden, Oh, we should have beaten Indiana. You know, maybe we should have, but nobody even picked us to beat. If you would have said the beginning of the year, we're going to win 54 games and get knocked out. It would have been like, there's no way possible. But when we did it, it wasn't, but it was just a great season all the way around. We had a great bunch of uh, veterans and uh, even our rookies that year were old. We had Chris Copeland at 28 and Pablo Prigioni at 32. So our, our rookies were veterans. I mean, they had been playing overseas for a number of years. And uh, it was just a great group of guys. I mean, they, they did uh, things we used to joke about and shoot around and walk through. What are we going to show these guys that they haven't already seen? I mean, we had Jason Kidd, who's 40. We had Kurt Thomas, Marcus Camby, Kenyon Martin. I mean, we had all the old heads and, uh, you know, it was just a great group. I mean, Mello led the league in scoring. JR was sixth man at a year. And just the electricity going into the garden was uh, – it was, it was just a, a season I'll never forget. And even the second year, I mean, we were, we were depleted with injuries early. We finished up like 16-5 and five at the end of the year. And we were playing really well. And I thought, you know, I thought that, uh, you know, we were going to make the playoffs. It was sort of like uh, – but we didn't. I think Atlanta got in there before us. But uh, we were playing at a high level. And I thought if we did get to the playoffs, we would have did some damage because we were playing such a high level at the last 20-some games of the year. But, you know, that wasn't to be. You know, Phil came in and, you know, he had, you know, cleaned house with us and stuff. So that was uh, the end of that. And, uh, and now, uh, you know, it's great to see uh, Coach Woodson on Coach Thibodeau's staff being back there and, Actually, I've had a lot of people saying, why don't the Knicks bring you back? You know, especially the way as poorly as they shoot the ball right now. I mean, they're, you know, you got RJ. I mean, they couldn't make a free throw last year. They couldn't make a, a shot. I mean, their point guard struggle. So who knows what will happen there, you know? For that, for that Knicks season, I mean, that was a record-setting season. I mean, the, the energy in the garments been electric just because of them, of them winning. But how they won was in, in large part due to their, their success shooting and the, ch and the change of mentality that, I mean, everyone credits it to, to the Warriors with Steph and Clay. 
but that Knicks team was one of the first ones to really embrace shooting the three ball. What can you kind of talk, touch on that and what that decision kind of came down to? Right. Uh, well, you know, Coach Woodson, you know, he he was a shooter himself back when he played. And actually that year we set a record for the most uh, threes made in NBA history. That's been shattered. I don't think it's in the top 50 now because everyone's three ball crazy. But, uh, you know, we, we uh, you know, we emphasize the threes every day and our guys, you know, bought into it. And uh, we actually had a thing that guys couldn't leave the gym until we had a certain drill that they had to uh, get. It was a uh, Actually, uh, it was three out of five. You had to make three out of five from seven spots. And if you didn't get three out of five, you had to restart the whole thing over again. And uh, all of our shooters had to do that. And we would challenge one against another. We'd pit one guy against another. And we made it competitive, but also fun. And then, uh, you know, and then if you did three out of five, you had to do four out of five. And then uh, a lot of guys wanted to stay five. But five, five, you didn't have to go back anywhere, though. You know, you, you would just stay, We, you know, but uh, – you know, guys got into it. And the thing that uh, I think really had a lot to do with it, you know, I'd been speaking at camps for so many years. Most of the guys had seen me at camps, like, you know, JR saw me when he was, you know, a real little guy. Carmelo saw me at Eastern Invitational, you know, was uh, up Mari at Sunshine Invitational. So, uh, you know, going in there and actually Steve Novak saw me when I, because I had spoken at Marquette when he was playing at Marquette. So, Going in, I think, you know, I had a, like a, a you know, a respect factor. Not only could I do it, but I could teach it and so forth. So the guys were sort of excited, you know, to, you know, to come in and spend extra time with me and stuff, you know. Well, that's great. I mean, especially considering I feel like anyone that's ever been to one of your clinics watching you miss either one or zero shots, obviously, I think will have a lot of respect for you when it comes to everything shooting. I don't think that's a question. Yeah, that's, I uh, appreciate that. You know, it's, uh, you know, something like I said, and it, it's something anybody can do if they put the time into it. I say, you know, there's two things you have to do if you want to be the greatest shooter in the world. Not 10 million things, just two. Number one, you shoot the ball correctly with the correct form and technique. I say that's the easy part. The second part is when nobody wants to be the greatest in the world. You have to shoot it correctly more times than anybody else in the world. And that's when we make excuses instead of making shots. You know, I got to do this, I got to do that, and so forth. I like that. Too many excuses being made, not enough shots being made. Um, that's it. So then now, I mean, doing the Dave Hopper shooting clinics for over almost 35 years, how do you kind of avoid burnout with that? Uh, you know what? I, I don't get burnt. It's something I love to do. I mean, every day I go into the gym, I'm excited because – I challenge myself because I've been charting my shots since I was 16 years old. So this could be the day I, I set a new record at this drill or that drill and so forth. So I never get, I mean, I'm excited every time I, I go into the gym. I mean, even in the NBA, like, you know, it's such a long season, you know, they call it a grind that I say a grind's something you don't like, like you grind your teeth, you grind your gears. It's not smooth. I'm, I'm not grinding, man. I'm doing something I love to do. And it's like, I'd say to the guys like, oh, you know, I haven't been playing this. I said, why did you start playing basketball? Why did you start playing? Well, it was fun and I loved it. Exactly. Now it's no longer fun. You don't love it. You're making more money than you ever thought was impossible, was imaginable. And now you're miserable. Go figure that one out. And I tell the guys, your time is going to come during the NBA season. And that's why you got to keep, keep putting in that time, doing your, doing your, uh, practice putting in extra time and a perfect example of that when i was with the knicks was chris copeland 
That kid didn't know when he was going to play or anything, but he was always ready and he always produced because he always put that time in. I remember, yeah, Chris Chris Copeland just really came out of nowhere and was and was great that year. So I mean, especially when you're saying it's just always being ready. I mean, I could say that with with the freshman team, especially at Xavier, at that age, guys get better in a week. Someone they, they can completely change their games because they grow or they or so, or, so, sure. or they, they learn something or they or they have confidence. Confidence is a huge thing too. And confidence I mean, is a huge with, thing. Uh, fantastic. No, that's the so, truth. I mean, and confidence is so important, especially at a young age. And how do you develop confidence through repetition, doing drills, and like I said by charting your shots. I mean, once you see yourself getting better and you know you're getting better, your confidence soars. Confidence leads to success. Success leads to confidence. Ongoing cycle. With the whole coronavirus pandemic, how has uh, your shooting clinics kind of adapted to, to fit that in? in this uh, my world? clinics have been non-existent. I mean, I had, I was supposed to go to China. I was supposed to go to Canada, or uh, Amsterdam, Australia, all over England, Ireland, you know, all through Great Britain and everything got shut down with that. My camps that I was supposed to have uh, all shut down for the summer. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I didn't get to do them. But luckily, one of the reasons I moved to Florida is I have my buddy's gym 365 days a year, 24-7. So I still could do my workouts. And I was doing some uh, workouts with local kids here in Florida so I continued doing that. And now things are starting. Well, I mean, the numbers are spiking, but now that the season's over, agents are contacting me, you know, because I have a, I have, you know, it's a full court facility. Um, there's nobody, no onlookers, no outsiders there. It's me and whoever I'm working with. I, I haven't even had anyone else in the gym, but me and the person I work at, whereas I usually have, you know, my daughter comes in to do the videotape and I usually have, uh, you know, a couple of interns, you know, rebound and charting shots. I haven't even done that. It's just me and the person I'm working out because, of, you know, some people are, you know, still eerie about this whole thing. And like I said, now the season's over, we have agents contacting me and everything. Matter of fact, I'm getting ready to um, send a letter out to, uh, you know, Giannis's uh, agent, you know, with his, his uh, lack of shooting, which, uh, you know, hurts him in the playoffs you know oh it's super interesting with him i mean i i wasn't gonna bring up but that's that's a great point because i I don't know if you've seen the video recently of his rookie year and how smooth his stroke looked back then yeah and then as he put on weight or maybe i think a lot of people put it on uh kind of the coaching staff there too kind of just changing his shot a little bit but he it's obviously it went from he was a mid 30 percent shooter his rookie year and it's just gone down while everything while everything else about his game has gone up yeah his his points per game everything has gone up what what do you think about that well, like I said, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, he's put some weight on and stuff. And, uh, you know, now, like I said, his, you got to realize his rookie year, he wasn't the two-time MVP either. You know, now everyone's, you know, gauging up on him. He's not getting the looks he had. But, like, you know, the free throw shooting, there's no excuse for that to be going down. But I've got pictures of him. And, I mean, his balance hand, I call it a balance. It's, it's opened up. You see it like this. It's actually higher than his shooting hand. It's up here and his shooting hands like here. And I, you know, there's few problems, you know, that I, I see with the stroke and everything, but I mean, he's a hard worker and there's no reason why he shouldn't, you know, continue to improve and everything. Cause he can do everything else. But as you see, you know, during the playoffs, the team, you know, they're just getting ready to play that team. They, they set up their defense every, you know, build that wall. So he has nowhere to go. And, and uh, you know, during the regular season it's great. Cause you, you play them four times a, a year and, you know, you're not just gearing up for them day after day after day. So, 
of course, playoff basketball is a completely different different style. That's something people don't really understand. They just think, okay, a lot of this stuff carries over. Most of it, it's it's so different in terms of how teams can prepare for you. And that's why some teams can do great in the regular season and bad in the playoffs. And others can really ramp it up in the playoffs. Same thing with, with players too, how some are able to completely change it. Just because it's kind of like how, just how styles make fights, which is just right. super interesting. I'll never too. forget um, when we made the playoffs up in Toronto and after the first playoff game, we played the Nets. You know, they were a veteran team and after the game, you know, Chris Bosch goes, geez, what a different game. You know, just the intensity, every possession is so valuable on everything. And, and uh, you know, it's a lot more physical and everything. And, well, back then it was, not, not nowadays. I mean, you know, you can't even, like, you know, bump the gutter anymore, so. Sure, and then, and then one last question just to wrap up. What's some advice you'd give yourself when you were younger, whether, whether it's when you were a kid, when you were in your 20s, just out of college, what, what kind of advice would you give yourself then that you kind of didn't really think of at the time? Uh, I would listen to my elders. You know, people that have uh, been there and done that, you know, it's as, as I get older, like I look back and then I'm like, yeah, now I, I know what my mother was talking about. But like when you're young, you know, you think you know everything and, and uh, to be coachable. I mean, um, one of the big things I think nowadays when kids are being corrected or coached, they take it as a personal attack, like on their, like on who they are. I mean, and coaches are trying to make you a better player, a better person. So the team is better. And so many kids take it as like, you're disrespecting their game or disrespecting them. And I remember listening, uh, this was several years ago, uh, listening to John Thompson on a, a radio station when I was down in the DC area. And he talked about, you know, you know, him coaching and he saw it even back when he was coaching. He says, you know, the problem is, he said, you know, a lot of the African-American kids, they've been raised by their grandmothers. You know, the dads have left. So they haven't had any real male influence in their life. So they're actually uh, reluctant to like trust a male figure because, you know, the dad has left, the dad's not there. And, you know, they're, he said he thought they were a little like, leery of that like well you're gonna you're gonna end up like leaving me too and so forth you know so i thought that was an interesting uh perspective on his part and stuff but uh you know it's like you know to accept coaching embrace it you know i mean like steph curry said if if, if you're not correcting me you're not coaching me and i'm not getting any better and the great the great ones want to be coached they want to be taught like i said kobe's looking me in the eye i want to be the great teach me show me tell me what i got to do and i'll do it but like I say, people are like, what was it like? And I said, it was a double-edged sword. It was great that I worked with Kobe, you know, and, uh, you know, a great player. And he wasn't ready for the NBA that first year, you know, but he bounced back from four air balls and everything. And I said that I've been disappointed because I've never had anybody work as hard as Kobe since that time. You know, it's like guys who like come in, they got to stretch, they got to do this. They walk through the drill. And he was just uh, an incredible player. Uh, Incredible guy on that basketball court. Oh, I mean, it, it's I mean, especially considering as what you said at the end about how he's it's it's disappointing because you always have that you hold everyone to that standard. Some of the best advice I've had on the show is from Brandon Steiner in one of the first episodes, saying because I was asking how to get more out of my players because I'm always trying to push them, I'm always trying to make them right. work as hard as as hard as I did a few years ago. I always bring that up as an example. He's like, John, you have to realize not everyone's Kobe. That was, those were his exact words. Not everyone's yeah, Kobe. Yeah, sure. Not everyone's, if, if, if you're a hard worker, not everyone's you. Yeah. Um, so you have to understand that sometimes, I mean, you, you have to kind of, instead of match, match the player with, match yourself to the player instead of matching the player to you. 
to make sure that you that you that you that you accommodate them and their needs and their and who they are as a player as opposed to having them fit you as a coach so that I mean, right that idea that you just said was 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 fantastic in, in explaining yeah. that yeah so it's funny i was listening to nba radio today and like uh you know sam mitchell was on and sam was you know coach at here when i was in toronto and he was saying you know you have to be fair with every player but you can't treat every player the same way. There's certain guys you can get on, you know, and he was using Chris Humphreys as an example. He goes, I could get on Chris Humphreys, blah, blah, blah. He said, well, he's coaching Minnesota. He could get on Carl Anthony Towns, but like Andrew Wiggins, he had to like talk to him. Like, you know, certain people don't respond, you know, to, you know, screaming and hollering. Some do. And, and uh, you know, but you have to be fair with every player. And although you're not treating each one the same and it's uh you know, Reggie Theus was on there as well. And Reggie Theus, you know, he said he coaches his team like he would uh, his family. You know, I got I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to teach you right from wrong and make you better. Of, of course. And and, that, and what you're saying, that that line is so difficult to, to go across. It, it's not it's, it's a fine line, but that's what separates the good coaches from the great coaches. So that, that's right. really what it all comes down to. So, so Dave, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, I, I really appreciate it. And I, I, we had, I mean, I had a great time talking to you and I know my listeners are really going to learn a lot from this episode and, and take a lot from it. So thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on and uh, tell everyone there I said hello and hope to uh, be back to do a clinic in the near future. I can't wait. That'd be fantastic. All Bye right. Then. Have a great day. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Big Fellas Podcast. Check us out on all major social media platforms at Big Fellas Pod to join the chop up. You can also listen to us on every podcast platform on the planet. Stay tuned for the next episode, Big Fellas.